0: Michael Osterling here and I'm speaking with Brent Gleason. He is a Navy SEAL combat veteran with multiple tours to Iraq and Africa and other theaters of war. Upon leaving SEAL Team 5, Brent turned his discipline and battlefield lessons to the world of business and has become an accomplished entrepreneur, author, and acclaimed speaker on topics ranging from leadership and building high performance teams to culture and organizational transformation. You can learn more about his leadership philosophies in his weekly columns on Inc.com and Forbes.com. With degrees in finance and economics from Southern Methodist University, English and history from Oxford University in England, and a graduate business degree from the University of San Diego, San Diego, Gleason's extensive experience is both academic and real world in nature. Gleason has won awards for business leadership and was named one of the top 10 CEOs and Entrepreneur's Magazine's October 2013 issue for his exemplary approach to building high-performance teams in business. Brent is on the executive board of the SEAL Family Foundation, and is an ambassador family for the March of Dimes. Welcome, Brent.
1: Good morning. Thanks so much, Great to be here.
0: So uh, you have a new book coming out very shortly. It's called uh, Talking Point. A Navy SEAL's 10 fail-safe principles for leading through change, which what brings us together and uh, takes your experiences on the battlefield as well as in the academic settings and brings it to the boardroom. I'm very excited that the book is coming out. I, you, you provided me the opportunity to read it and it's an amazing read. I'm going to definitely highly recommend anyone who's uh, not just in the business world, but uh, anywhere that's uh, working through institutions that have to deal with the changing dynamics in a world. You know, as we move from the uh, industrial age to the information age, uh, a lot of our institutions, both in the business space and, and elsewhere, are failing to catch up with the uh, dynamic changes. And uh, your book is a, a fantastic blueprint for those who are interested in trying to understand, live through successfully, not only survive but thrive in this new space. Um, but before we jump into your book, um, you have an interesting story to tell about uh, what first led you to the team and then post-team life in the business space. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I uh, originally grew up in Dallas, Texas, uh, went to uh, Southern Methodist University for undergraduate and earned degrees in finance and economics. And after that, I uh, graduated and took the job as a financial analyst with a large investment firm. But during that time, so, therefore, I had no real immediate aspirations of joining the military, much less the Navy, or going into the SEAL program, but I had two very close friends who were uh, planning on joining the Navy. One I graduated with, who was my roommate. He went into Navy Intel, has had a phenomenal career, uh, now resides in D.C., close to you, and Mm -hmm. the other one was a year behind me in school, but he was dead set on joining the Navy. An attempt to at making it to to buds uh, for the you know the initial uh, field training pipeline and keep in mind I graduated in '99 so when I was working and then we moved on into 2000 he was a senior uh, so this is just pre-9/11 so kind of a different mindset uh, as far as um, your uh, your service back then it was definitely uh, about serving the country giving to a cause bigger than yourself but there are also other the reasons, and I have such deep respect for our servicemen and women, uh, and especially those who are, uh, have aspirations of joining special operations ranks, uh, because they know they're going to be the tip of the spear, and they know they're going to be in harm's way. It's, it's a different mindset uh, these days, but while I was working, he and I started training together. I was a college athlete, played rugby, and, and so it was just a way to stay fit and helped him prepare for a, a long journey ahead, but during that time, I started reading more books about the history of the SEAL teams and uh, our culture, and, and kind of some of those stories and what it means to be part of that type of elite, high-performance organization, so to speak. And I became more fascinated uh, with that, uh, culturally speaking, and with the you know the, the concept of that challenge. And so, after about a year of working uh, as a financial analyst, I Eventually quit my job, and then my buddy and I moved to Crested Butte, Colorado, where we trained for an additional six months for about four or five hours a day at 10,000 feet altitude to get into the best physical condition that we could, and then in uh, early 2000, uh, early mid-2000, uh, joined the Navy, and uh, after a couple months of basic training, was on a plane headed out here to San Diego, California to begin the journey, and uh, joined class, Bud uh, Class 235, and graduated and went on to SEAL Team 5, and then uh Afghanistan at that point had, had spun up. Uh, 9-11 was literally a couple days before my class started the advanced portion of training, which is called SEAL Qualification Training, or SQT, and you, you saw a dynamic mindset transformation uh in the special operations community, as you can imagine, because they went immediately overnight from a, essentially a peacetime fighting force focusing on readiness to a combat force <laughs> in a constant state of change and transformation and running missions, you know, all over those areas. And so it was interesting to see the beginning of that organizational transformation uh, and, and witness that. And then Iraq spun up, and my task unit from SEAL 5 was actually the first um, task unit in uh, Iraq. And we got there in April 2003 uh, to run what we called capture or kill missions, basically operating mostly around Baghdad. Um and did, did that for uh, you know a few tours, and then moved on to,
0: to other things. So. And then uh, soon after leaving the uh, Navy, you then got kind of back into uh, the business world and the business space, and you've been quite successful. Um, and presently, obviously, you have your book coming out, but you're also a consultant where you go in and you work with um, uh, large corporations. Um, is that accurate?
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. So my my People always ask me, well, what was your transition like? What was your transition plan? So my strategy for transition was to have no downtime. So I took the GMAT before my last tour, uh, had been accepted to graduate school uh, here in San Diego uh, at USD and began grad school literally about a week after I got out of the Navy. And I met my business partner there in graduate school. I know very cliche, <laughs> but we met in graduate school. And started our first company. Did a Series A round for that of about a million five, um, and then uh, a few years later, uh, raised some more money. Um, initially, a kind of a, a, a secondary revenue stream or a, a, an arm of that first company, and then spun it off as its own entity and raised about two million for that company. And, um, and then that company doubled in size every year since we started it. It was a 500 company every year for eight years in a row, um, but. Obviously, uh, being an entrepreneur has its own uh, interesting dynamics, its own challenges, the adversity you have to overcome. Um, There's just a lot you don't know and problems that arise that you've never dealt with before. So I really tried to lean on a lot of the principles that we learn in field training that we apply as our lives as operators and what makes the dynamic um, and disciplined culture of the Naval Special Warfare community uh, you know, a high-performance organization, so to speak. So our principles of leadership at all levels, uh, adaptability, agility, discipline, uh, high levels of accountability and trust woven into the fabric of that culture, uh, high levels of transparency of communication uh, up and down the chain of command and across the organization. We've uh, In the SEAL teams, we've done a pretty good job in our post-9-11 reality of breaking down those internal silos that impede communication and really pushing authentic leadership down the chain of command Uh, so that we can be much more nimble and adaptive, essentially creating networks, sort of that more agile organizational model, uh, as opposed Mm -hmm. to what you might consider the more hierarchical uh, military style model. Um, But that application has a a very um, uh, positive benefit in today's more dynamic business environment. And the field teams we operate in, this is one of our many acronyms, of course, but we operate in VUCA environments, and that refers to the volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous environments that we operate in. But That acronym is now widely used in the global business community, um, and, of course, referring to the more disruptive, more fast-paced, um, unsettled global business environment that causes organizations essentially just to compete and, and survive, if not even thrive, uh, in this business environment, it causes organizations sometimes to at least attempt to grow faster with fewer resources. They have less time to focus on their, the financial aspects of their strategy, um, but they're trying new business models, trying new markets, uh, and trying just to compete uh, in, this, in this very different um, 21st century landscape, but they, they skip a lot of the transformative steps um, that make an organization great, like the SEAL teams, which is, which is culture. And I experienced that both in some successes, but in large part, many failures as a business leader in my own organizations. And this is where a lot of my, quote, unquote, wisdom comes from. It's just a long series of mistakes that <laughs> cost me a lot of money over the years. <laughs> Isn't that how it goes, Michael?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unfortunately so. Or fortunately
1: so. Business always costs money. Hard and soft costs, but there's always hard costs when it comes to mistakes. So... Based on my experiences in the SEAL teams and trying to apply some of those pin- principles in this dynamic business environment, that's what led to uh, realizing that I needed to capture some of these principles in a book, which is
0: taking place. Um, And you definitely did, and it's it really interesting because a lot of things you just talked about are kind of the high-level chapters of each of your books. But before we get there, um, you know, you talked about the kind of the, the dynamic environment in which businesses find themselves in now, kind of the information age. Um, and you put some interesting stats in there in your book. Um, you said fifteen percent of global workforce is only fifteen percent of the global workforce is engaged <laughs> with their job and you also said there 's about five hundred and fifty five billion dollars of lost pro- productivity just in the u s alone due to employee disengagement so not only yep. do you have a dynamic uh, field that businesses now have to operate in much much more um, uncertain than maybe 30, 40, 50 years ago. But you also have <laughs> such a large number of employees that are actually not engaged in the work, costing those businesses a lot of revenue. Um, yep. So that's kind of my entry point. And what I'd like to do is, is actually quote first from your Ford And you have uh, Mark Owen, who's a former Step Group team leader. And I pulled out a quote from him from your from your Ford, and he says, um, how can leaders and managers transform their mindsets, align the culture with specific business strategies, and successfully last lead lasting organizational transformations? And then he talks about how you are teaching companies to do such such. Um, so let's first. You mentioned culture, and it seems like if uh, you know 85% of employees are disengaged from their from the business life, um, that's a cultural issue. Yeah. Talk to me about when you walk into consulting. Uh, uh, you know, when you go into consult and you're one of the things you talk about is culture. You know, um, what are some of the things that you lead with in that conversation, and what are some of the, the challenges you face in terms of the leadership understanding what you're attempting to do to help transform them to lead successful teams.
1: Sure. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting. I always kind of joke, but I'm kind of being serious that one of the great things about the field teams is we have 100% employee engagement. Only organization out there. <laughs> we are all emotionally <laughs> connected behind our mission narrative to purge the world of evil. But those statistics you were talking about are from some global Gallup data just from last year um, with, with 67% of the global workforce being disengaged. The problem with disengaged team members in any organization, as it, and especially as it relates to navigating growth and change and transformation in this dynamic environment, is that those folks are kind of hard to identify. Oftentimes, and we've seen this all in, in our own organizations. They're relatively happy. You know, they're punching in, they're punching out. They're not necessarily a, a team player, overly collaborative. They don't have a, an above and beyond attitude, so to speak. Um, but they're not necessarily vocal or about being disengaged or about being unhappy. So they're kind of hard to identify, which makes that a very uh, difficult managerial task uh, to root out because that pool of disengaged people that makes up the majority of most organizations is both a problem but also an opportunity. So disengaged when um, left alone long enough can be uh, become that 18% who are actively disengaged, meaning they're basically working against the organization from the inside out, or they can be really brought over to the light, <laughs> to, the, to the engaged. <laughs> when, they're, when they're given – and this also goes into, you know, the new younger generations in the workforce, the millennial set and things like that, and understanding what that workforce cares about. They care deeply about culture and vision and purpose and their workplace environment. But those people will not be of that 15% who are engaged unless managers and leaders prioritize defining the culture, for, for one, managing that mm-hmm. culture, secondly, third, aligning that culture with the strategic vision of the company, because most organizational cultures, unfortunately, just kind of come about a bit haphazardly. They're not necessarily right. designed. And then fourth, of course, um, le- leaning on the culture, especially when the organization is facing any type of significant change or transformation. Therefore, One thing I help organizations do is start by – if they want to have a culture-driven transformation model, which is what I talk about in the first chapter of the Mm -hmm. book, first you have to start by, just like anything else, gathering intelligence. So what is our culture? Let's audit it. Let's let's understand what the strengths of this organizational culture are. that can be prime movers for leading change. What are the weaknesses that are going to stand in the way of our growth or change efforts, weaknesses that need to be eliminated? And then once you identify that, then you can work simultaneously to both improve the culture and align it with the strategic vision so that you're building a really solid foundation and a a shared sense of purpose with everybody in the organization. Um, And so they can all emotionally connect to that mission narrative of what you're trying to achieve, uh, regardless of whatever that transformation or growth strategy is.
0: Well, so when you do your cultural diagnostic analysis and, like, your team engagement audit, Uh, Are there certain tools that you use to to gather this information from staff?
1: Yeah, one of the easiest ways if an organization hasn't done it yet, let's say you're you're trying to do your cultural diagnostic analysis, really just starting with with surveys, starting with 360 review surveys, other Mm -hmm. types of surveys Mm -hmm. that you can customize to really get as much information and understanding from everybody in the organization as possible about what the culture is. Um, And even – if you can gather information from outside the organization. So it's really interesting to see, well, what do our competitors perceive our culture to be? Because um, I know in my last company, we have a lot of friendly competitors here in San Diego, which, you know, is essentially a large, small town. And it, we all knew because people would come and go from our organization to our competitors and back and forth. And that's another thing with <laughs> this generation, as they move around a lot, uh, the younger generation. Um, but it was a great intel-gathering tool And well, what's it like over there? What's their culture? You know, is their culture well-defined? You know, are their core values really in line with what the organization is all about? Or is it just something on a PowerPoint slide or painted on the wall? Um, how authentic is it? And if you can gather that information, both through formal and informal channels, from outside the organization, too, that gives you a good perception of what uh, what potential candidates uh, might perceive the organization to, to, to be like. Um, there's other, but I recommend other uh, culture sentiment tools that are like culture Amp, and there's some other ones that are more like real-time applications that you can access from any device. Again, also perfect for, um, you know, the, the information technology age that we live in and the younger generations who want to have the ability to provide constant feedback. Um, one, of the, one of the great things about you know, the special operations community is we have uh, a culture, of very it's a learning culture, but therefore for it to really be a true learning culture and to move at the speed these wars require, it's constant, brutal, transparent feedback and the application of that information to improving ourselves. It's more difficult to apply that you know, in a civilian work environment because the way we do it in teams is pretty brutal. <laughs> but yeah, but Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, let me ask you uh, about yeah. that because you're, you're after, like, after action review, right? So you brutal, honest, open, as you just suggested. Well, in today's kind of postmodern world where you have to be careful of hurting people's feelings and there's political correctness issues and multicultural issues, how do you navigate that?
1: You, you start it, – it, it, it has to start uh, with a leadership approach. It has to be led from the top and it has to be part of the culture. One of, the things that, one of the reasons it works in the field teams is it's, it's part of our culture. We learn it from day one in BUDS and through SQT and in the teams that whether it's formal channels like an after-action review or just informal peer-to-peer coaching and learning, uh, even if that quote-unquote coaching can be a little bit harsh sometimes, uh, we just don't have time for passive-aggressive communication. It's got to it's gotta be drilled in, and it's got to be drilled in fast. Now, that being said, in uh, a civilian workforce, One of the best ways to have uh, transparent communication flow seamlessly up and down the chain of command is me as a senior leader, I have to drill that into the culture that I want everyone in the organization to not just hold themselves accountable, but hold me accountable, again, through formal and informal mechanisms, an informal mechanism just being uh, me constantly asking how am I doing as your leader? What could I be doing better to make your job easier, to help this organization uh, grow intelligently? Those types of questions show people beneath you and, and, and around you that uh, that you care about their feedback. And I, uh, anonymous 360 reviews are one of the best mechanisms for that, especially if you do it on a regular basis, because everybody knows that their voice is actually being heard. And once you extract data from those surveys, and actually apply it to improving yourself as a leader, or to, um, you know, to coaching others, then it starts to slowly become part of the culture and it becomes expected as a social norm.
0: It, it seems to me that it would require a psychological immature adult um, in the position of leadership who can take feedback and not, quote-unquote, take it personally, get defensive, use that information against subordinates. And I would imagine the reverse is true for subordinates. They'd have to actually have a lot of trust <laughs> that yeah. information they're providing up the chain or laterally is not going to be used against them personally or against their, their you know, their, their group.
1: Uh, no, you're, <laughs> you're, I was I was kind of laughing internally when you said that because I remember my first 360 review that I, that, you know, that I implemented, but it started at the senior leadership level, primarily with me as the CEO. And reading through it was a gut punch because we had never done it before and I was drinking my own Kool-Aid. The company was doubling in size, but okay. I'm doing a great job as their leader. This company is awesome, but there was some stuff that they really uh, was humbling, uh, to say the least. And you know, based on some of the commentary, I was like, oh, I know exactly who that person is. <laughs> you know, <they're> fired.
0: <laughs>
1: Which of course did not do that, and that you have to you have to approach that in a very mature, um, self-aware uh, you know, manner. But you know, to your point. There are plenty of people at the very top of organizations and successful ones who score very low on the emotional intelligence scale, um, right. one of those ones being self-awareness. And not only are they not self-aware, they don't want to be self-aware. <laughs> they actively choose to just live in their own reality and not seek feedback um, from their peers. But really good leaders are lifelong learners, and they crave, like desperately crave, Feedback about how they're doing and how they can improve, and that shows maturity in leadership. The opposite shows immaturity in leadership. And when you have um, that mindset at the top of an organization, it's oftentimes very hard to take it um, from one level to the next.
0: So when you're working with uh, CEOs or upper-level managers, um, one year, what, what I hear you saying is one of the things that you look for is emotional intelligence, cognitive complexity. Uh, a willingness to learn and be open, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if you find a client who is slightly open, you know, slightly open emotionally, at least open cognitively to, to think more broadly, more complexly, um, do you work with them individually to kind of develop up the, up the ladder of their emotional intelligence and the complexity of their thinking? Um, or do you just work on the team level? Like, how, how does that work? when you're going into an organization uh, it, or a business? It,
1: it's both, actually. Like, for example, I was having okay. a conversation with a client yesterday. They're, um, I'll leave their name out, but they're, they're a, a global mm-hmm. accounting firm. But they are, like, like some of my other clients, they're in you know, large global companies. A lot of these large companies are going through major transformative steps to go from sort of your more traditional model to an agile model. So instead of hierarchies, they're replacing hierarchies with networks um, and ecosystems of, of teams and, and pods and, and whatnot uh, that are empowered with, you know, meaningful work and, and different projects and creating cross-functional teams. But that's a major transformation, especially for larger organizations to go through. But uh, when we were talking and, and the individual I was talking to is, you know, his mindset transformation has already occurred. He, he knows the organization uh, needs this, but also knows that they're approaching it um, incorrectly. And one of the mm. things we have in the SEAL teams is don't run to your death. meaning when you're on an enemy target, take it slow, like slow as smooth, smooth as fast, assess mm. risk, and use aggressiveness and speed when necessary, um, which is sort of a, a, a dynamic shift of how we used to uh, engage on enemy targets. But uh, as we adapt to our enemy tactics and they adapt to ours, uh, we've um, – kind of shifted on how we do things. And a lot of organizations will come to the realization they need to move to a more agile model or revamp their their business structure, their systems, their process. But they, again, they skip those transformative, foundational pieces of culture transformation, making sure that culture and and the mindsets, especially of the leaders and managers closer to the top, actually align with that new vision. Because if the mindsets don't align with the vision, then they won't get there, especially if you have senior leaders who are um, who are not aligned in that vision, but also uh, their mindsets don't align with achieving that vision, and therefore you can only take that process mm-hmm. and that transformation so far. And that's why 70%, according to McKinsey and Company, 70% of organizational transformation efforts either fail or fall short of their objectives, in large part due to. Uh, leadership mindsets that don't align with that vision, misalignment among those senior leaders on how to get there, Uh, or even if it's a priority for the organization. (laughs) That can be pretty detrimental because there's misaligned communication going down the chain of command and across the organization, so people get confused and don't know what to do. So instead of doing something, they typically do nothing and just wait and see. Um, And there's a lot of other reasons due to, you know, culture misalignments and and accountability issues in an organization and the lacking of understanding of um, the financial implications, concepts of accountability and internal trust have in an organization. But uh, it's a pretty daunting statistic when you think about 70% of major change efforts like the one I just talked about in a global accounting firm, uh, 70% fail due to skipping those foundational steps. They start on step five or six <laughs> and skip over steps one through four or five, um, which leave them uh, significantly short of meeting those goals. Uh, once they start seeing the finish line, they realize they're nowhere near uh,
0: where they need to be. You know, I have a couple questions around your cultural-driven transformational model, but let me, let me ask you another question. Um, one of your chapters is uh, fatigue, managing fear, and staying energized and, and listening to you talk, uh, and talking about the different dynamics within leadership teams and the, the necessity for emotional intelligence, cognitive complexity, et cetera, et cetera. How, how do you help people deal with fear, both fear internally in terms of the, uh, office politics <laughs> and then the yeah. fear for, of change, you know, the, uh, the changing a particular culture or the fact that the business is within an industry that's shifting. The industries within a whole economic system that's shifting, um, yeah. and then staying energized. Let's talk a little bit about that as well.
1: Sure. And to your point, you make a good point about change can be both internal and external. An organization is forced to change from maybe internal complexities that are making, make them need to shift their business model, external complexities due to transitions in the marketplace, um, the economy, uh, the competitive landscape, whatever it is, but. Change in an organization can uh, can be intensely personal for the people within that organization, and that uh, can cause fear to set it, and that fear leads to what I call change battle fatigue. But as managers, we often make the mistake of assuming that everyone on our team and ourselves Make decisions based on uh, rational thought. <laughs> and it, which and a, and actually, it's more about uh, you know whatever it is. Eighty or ninety percent of our decisions are based more so on emotion. Um, mm-hmm. So when an organization is faced with significant change, one of the areas where, and I've done this you know, in the past, I've made these mistakes too, is we don't start with a highly aligned vision and, and mission narrative that people can emotionally connect to. But we start going down that, that path, and we don't continue to communicate that vision and communicate the quick wins and the milestones and identify those key performance indicators that show progress towards that transformation. Because when people are fearful, you're going to have, you know, of those three groups of people in the team, the, the, the engaged, who will be your change agent, so to speak, or your change evangelist, they'll get it, they'll understand it, they'll help communicate that vision throughout the ranks of the organization. They'll help create transformation task force that can take some of those transformative steps. But then you're disengaged. They're going to just wait and see, uh, typically, unless they can be brought over to to the uh, the change evangelist side, the engaged team members. Um, And then you're actively disengaged. They're going to be working against that transformation effort. They're not going to believe in it. Uh, They're going to think it won't work. Um, And oftentimes that's due to having seen it fail in the past. Uh, and usually, oftentimes, those disengaged, those excuse me, those actively disengaged people, they can be very influential people in the organization because they're subject matter experts or their tenure, mm-hmm. and therefore, they hold a lot of weight when they're working against uh, the organization. And that permeates toxicity throughout the organization. That uh, fuels the fear of those disengaged people who really don't know what's going on because it hasn't been communicated. So from the very first part of the mission planning process, so to speak. You really have to identify, if not even manufacture, quick wins that can be achieved and celebrated at the you know, three-month, six-month, 12-month, 18-month marks so that you can formally and informally tell the story of the transformation progress. And therefore, people will stay energized. They will see the light, so to speak. They'll see the vision really coming to fulfillment. And then you can also use that as a tool to bring some of those naysayers some of the actively disengaged um, uh, into the understanding that, okay, this is actually working. This is actually good for the organization. And, you know, hey, I want to be a part of this, too, because I see all these people getting publicly rewarded for their work, you know, in the activities and behaviors and projects that are associated with driving this mission forward. I want to be part of that team. Uh, And if those people don't eventually come over to the light, then they need to be removed because they'll continue to stand in the way of progress.
0: You know what's pretty amazing is uh, the, neuro, the m- most recent neuroscience research completely supports the process you just laid out in terms of fear and the part of the brain that uh, it reduces blood flow to and and and, not, and the quick wins and the rewards and the part of the brain that's uh, triggered there. Um, you know you're paralleling how the brain functions and how people can thrive in an environment versus a just attempt to survive in an environment. It's pretty amazing that uh, you know just your experience, your study, your knowledge, kind of fits with research that's coming out on the brain side of things. So, well, cool.
1: one of my favorite lines from the SEAL ethos is, "I persevere and thrive in adversity," and and it goes back to really our training, our pre- our preparation, our readiness, and and that mindset that develops over time due to the very difficult and constant nature of our training. Um, and as we say, our training is never complete. And if you can really Uh, start to embed that type of thinking in the culture of an organization and build, this goes to the the last chapter of the book, build a resilient team, uh, a truly resilient organization, then you're going to have an organization that is strong, that bounces back from diversity, that has resilient team members in it uh, that that do the same and can help your organization navigate the obstacles that it's going to face in today's environment pretty much constantly. (laughs) So a uh, right. assesses organization pursuing growth and excellence and, and uh, you know, generating great financial returns. There's always going to be obstacles that will stand in the way. But if you don't have a resilient organization, it bounces back quickly uh, from the barriers that w- it will inevitably hit, then you really can't take it to uh, whatever that level is that you want to or that amazing exit strategy that, that, that will truly fulfill the vision of the organization or whatever you're trying to accomplish um you know, without that resilient mindset and without that ability to uh, mitigate fear and make those obstacles uh, an, an opportunity. It's really, a, a, again, another mindset transformation. And, and I talk about the 15 pillars of resilient organizations in Chapter 10, mm-hmm. but it's really having a mindset where you see obstacles as opportunities, not as barriers that you, that you cannot be surpassed. And, and that's the problem with a lot of companies is, is They see certain obstacles that are are barriers that they will never overcome.
0: So, in your book, you kind of highlight the need for psychological, cultural, and systemic changes within organizations, institutions, and businesses. So, let me let me ask my last question. This is around your culture-driven transformative model. Um, I'm curious. You know, you're both conventionally educated in the business space, and you also have the unconventional education in the battle space that you're bringing to the business space. Looking back at your formal education and then seeing where some of the people you're working with in terms of CEOs and upper-level managers and their education, is our education system in, especially in the business world really preparing, um, you know, future CEOs and future upper-level managers and <laughs> the type of thinking that is necessary that you teach your clients?
1: Traditionally, no, Uh, and I can speak for – I'll speak for myself, uh, uh, you know, uh, in in large part because, you know, grad school teaches you only uh, certain functional things, but it doesn't teach you necessarily, um, you know, about the complexities of the the marketplace, the complexities of today's business environment and, uh, and what it takes to really lead an organization in a volatile environment. Um, it doesn't teach you the, you know, emotional intelligence side of things, the, the cognitive approach that needs to be taken when dealing with multi generational workforces, uh, or um, really how to prioritize employee engagement and creating collaborative uh, networks and cross functional teams. These are things that you most organizations learn on the fly. <laughs> Unfortunately, most leaders learn on the fly. But then, but the companies that are really thriving in the 21st century are. They are, and that's why it also takes a mindset transformation because they are shifting resources to to focus on these things. To focus on leadership development at all levels of the organization, so identifying and developing their emerging leaders, and having really good um, programs uh, for upward mobility in the organization, both personal and professional development for people. So not just your you know, training for skill sets that are that are for subject matter expertise, so to speak, but training. In, in personal development in, in emotional intelligence and uh, communication skills and strategies that most organizations it's not for a lack of wanting it's just for a lack of not prioritizing it both from a time perspective and a, a cost perspective because and one of the reasons is based on uh, the you know the 2008 global economic meltdown many organizations out there are still managing and leading out of fear because they're trying to either regrow or come back from uh, some of the uh, legacy issues that were caused during that time. And they don't, I've made this mistake myself, that we don't prioritize leadership development and and, and culture and core values and making sure that we're making decisions based on that. We're focused on sales growth, building shareholder value, regaining profitability and net margin and and EBITDA and all these things and (laughs) leaving all that other stuff to the side. But, But again, today's workforce doesn't care as much about that. They care about the foundational elements of culture and engagement and being given meaningful work and being given the authentic leadership capability to have autonomy to actually do that work. But to do it properly, they got to have the resources, they got to have the training because we can't have a disciplined, accountable team that will execute and lead at all levels if they don't have the training and resources to do it. Because then it's just an inauthentic gesture we're saying, hey, I'm empowering you to do all this stuff, but I'm giving you zero resources to do it. <laughs> and, you know, like, that sounds you know, familiar. You're like, you're send a, you know, a team of feels in to, you know, capture a bad guy, but we're going to give them squirt guns, you know. Yeah. Probably won't work out too well. Actually, I'm kidding. We probably would still execute pretty well. well actually, you,
0: yeah, you guys are probably going to be successful. <laughs> Most others would not. <laughs> well, hey, Brent, I uh, definitely appreciate your time. Love the book. I encourage folks to check it out. Talking Point, a Navy SEAL's 10 Fail-Safe Principles for Leading Through Change. Uh, where can people find your book and find out more about your work?
1: Uh, yeah, so Taking Point can be found on Amazon. It can be found on my website, dot com. There's obviously plenty of information there, but uh, on Amazon. So if you just put Amazon Taking Point or Amazon Taking Point, Brent Gleason, page shows right up there. It's on Barnes & Noble. It's on all the retailers, and it comes out February 27th. Encourage people to buy it now because it's uh, only $17 now as opposed to $27 when I, <laughs> when it comes out in February 27th. But one important thing I just wanted to note real quick is that um, a large portion of the proceeds support the Seal Family Foundation. So not only is it a you know, good book, but and has uh, garnered a lot of great accolades. But um, everyone will be supporting a worthy cause. So appreciate it.
0: Fantastic. Well, thanks, Brent. Appreciate your time. Man. Thanks so much. It was an honor.